Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. This episode is sponsored by Blurb. Design Observer uses Blurb's creative publishing platform for our book and magazine projects. Blurb's got a free plugin for Adobe InDesign, tons of print options, and they can turn around your project in 7 to 11 days. We think you'll love Blurb as much as we do. To try it out or to learn more, go to Blurb.com. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. So, Michael, you're back. Welcome home. How was your trip? Thank you. I uh, combined a little bit of business with a family vacation and went to uh, Australia and someplace I've never been before in my life, New Zealand, and it was just amazing. And uh, I came back to uh, uh, see something come to fruition that I'd heard about when I was down in New Zealand that I found really fascinating. The designers in New Zealand were all abuzz about the fact that uh, a national competition was being conducted to design a new flag for their relatively young country. And the results have now been officially posted online. And a lot of people, not just in New Zealand and not just uh, down under, but all over the place are talking about what's been posted. And it's quite fascinating, if you ask me. And we'll put a link on our website. Uh, There's a wonderful video that talks about the five rules or or at least principles that guide good flag design. I thought it was very well done. Were the people that were actually participating in the flag design um, debate all designers, or was it a really sort of wide open democratic thing open to the public? Um, it was wide open, but um, the um, the short list that they've published seems to have a lot of I, I, a lot of professional design work in it, and it all looks very professional. And a lot of it is really um, convincing and kind of raises these issues about how you symbolize a whole country. One thing that struck me about New Zealand, a country that I was not really familiar with before I was there and spent some time, uh, was um, that it has a lot of visual iconography that is really associated and understood by people all across the country you know the um uh the fern the fern leaf that kind of is a uh, uh, a national icon that's their equivalent some say to canada's maple leaf and then um the uh uh Characteristic shapes of uh, old Maori carvings or, uh, you know, uh, even contemporary Maori carvings uh, and uh, artwork, which have been incorporated in many ways into a lot of the designs that you'll see. So it has a strikingly and I thought uh, intriguingly coherent uh, uh, design culture to draw on. And it's really interesting to watch different uh, um, designers, professional and amateur, kind of access this kind of common well of imagery and come up with really different interesting takes on how to symbolize, again, an entire country. What is that thing that appears on so many of them is, is, that's like a kind of a curlicue? What is that? Is that, is that some sheep reference? Is that a, a, a ram? <laughs> So it's a speaking, uh, speaking as an Aries. It's a Maori symbol that's seen everywhere. That's seen in old Maori structures. That's seen in contemporary artwork, and it's called a koru, and it represents simultaneously a ram's head. Refers to the uh, curling uh, uh, fern leaf, which is ubiquitous in uh, um, New Zealand culture. And um, one of the things that's interesting is I asked 
a um, Australian at one point um, and a New Zealander. I asked them both the same question. What was the main difference between their countries? And one of the things that was raised by the New Zealander was the fact that uh, the indigenous Maori culture that they have in that country is like quite homogenous and quite quite coherent as like a tradition within the country. I think in uh, um, in Australia, the uh, indigenous culture is much more fragmented and there are lots of different kind of aspects of it. But when you're in New Zealand, it's really interesting to see how how pronounced that sense of uh, uh, of native Maori culture is. It goes through the whole country, so it's really interesting to see people take that kohru form, which to um, you know at least to northern hemisphere eyes, my own eyes, it just looks like a pretty sort of curly cue thing. But it has really deep resonant meaning to uh, people who are there. And there's been some very nice ones. One of the flags shows uh, you know the Union Jack, which is the reference to uh, uh, the New Zealand, uh, you know, if you will imperial past uh, part of the british empire and sort of takes the uh four ends of the uh, union jack and turns them into uh uh, uh korus and sort of is this really deft i think bit of uh, visual shorthand that kind of merges uh you know the british culture and the indigenous uh, uh new zealand culture in a way that i thought was actually kind of elegant there's a lot of real i think as when i heard they were doing a competition to design a flag i sort of winced a little bit and thought this cannot end well having seen the submissions i actually am struck by uh the fact that when something is well run and when um, it's people are all doing it in a spirit of uh, optimism and goodwill, you get some really interesting results. So I think they may very well come up with a nice flag design. And are there things about the color palette that were specific to Maori culture also? Um, yeah, there's um, uh, red, white, black tends to be something that runs all the way through. Black is the um, uh, color of the national sports team. Um, you sort of see that reference as a designer, of course. You know, I just love the idea, you know. Uh, the whole thing would be black and white. Black, <laughs> that is black and white with a little touch of red. You know, so, um, you know, New Zealand Air's livery is uh, black. One of the... Uh, one of the one of the nicest, most concise submissions for the flag is simply a black background with a silver uh, uh, fern leaf on it. So there's a, there's this really kind of nice, almost effortless sort of a very contemporary minimalism down there that I thought that I think is is very bracing uh, uh, visually and um, really interesting and uh, certainly. Uh, uh, I can't even imagine what would happen if they had such a competition in the United States. It just would be as chaotic as our national elections are in terms of uh, <laughs> the level yeah, of discourse. You get like the big yeah. tuft of, of hair that was meant to represent Donald Trump. <laughs> I, so someone, yeah. did a, someone did a really nice logo for Trump that actually I thought was really beautifully done. Where you know how, um, you know, like a lot of these political logos have these kind of swirling kind of things that uh, are not uh, koru but are meant to represent waving flags. Someone has a really oh, elegant where, where they just wave the red yeah, stripes. Yeah, it's really like a very so elegant good. silhouette of Trump. His mouth open, delivering some sort of um, cantankerous insult, no doubt. But then his hair is just doing this really elegant kind of sweeping, uh, lovely sort of compound curve driven form that I thought was really um, apt and I. I, I really think if uh, if he ran and adopted that as his logo, I think it would be game over in terms yeah, of a logo competition. Yeah, and I'm really hoping that someone from the 
Trump campaign is listening to this podcast, I so hope they so can too. adopt. Uh, what did you just call it? Comb over, um, <laughs> curvy and yes. and form driven. Or something. Yeah, we have to come back to that. Elegant compound curves. No, I um compound um, and, curves. There we go. And I'm compound saying curves. and I'm saying that in without irony or sarcasm. I mean, it's like really a nice logo, and he should find whoever did it and uh, make sure that he has the rights to it because I think it really could go far. But you're making reference to something that our listeners uh, who are not designers or primarily designers may not immediately come to that you and I are using as interchangeable uh, language, which is logo and flag. And so to the extent that a flag, you know, has to really do a lot more than just be emblazoned on the side of a truck or actually be able to be accompanied by other kinds of information, you know, has to fly unfurled on top of state buildings and so forth. It really has to accomplish a lot more than a logo in a way, and mm-hmm. in some ways less. But do you see them as interchangeable? Um, I think in a way they serve a similar function. They uh, are simple, well, relatively simple um, uh, graphic forms that are meant to evoke much larger ideals ideals and ideas about uh, uh, national pride, about national identity, and end up as symbols and logos sometimes do, you know, being convenient shorthand substitutes for those same ideas. You know, an example we saw just this summer was the, uh, you know, gargantuan controversy about the um, uh, Confederate flag. There's actually really interesting history, as um, as I think you know, about like what is the Confederate flag and what do we construe as the actual Confederate flag. And um, it's actually more complex than, uh, uh, than I think it appears to be in the popular imagination. Yeah, what I thought was interesting, and in, in, um, I was talking to somebody recently, a, a political reporter, about the history of the Confederate flag. And, and early on, and, and all of this is available online, you can find it very easily, but early on, it had a great deal of white, which designers tend to love. I certainly love lots of white space on a flag. But the problem with it was that when it it flew at at um, in in at half master, it flew in the air. You, it looked like a flag of surrender because of all the white. So it really makes you realize that the impact that color has, even more than form, because this thing is constantly moving. Um, but but they're really they're quite beautiful. Some of those Confederate flags, but they are. I mean, as, as I think Steve Heller has talked about at great length, they they become kind of they have the same toxicity for many people as say the swastika or Nazi symbols that that it immediately conveys something that's very negative. Indeed, um, yeah, yeah. And I think it conveys something negative. And I think what I find really fascinating and where I think flags and logos have something in common is. Uh, you know, in some ways, they become convenient substitutes for very large, complex, uncomfortable ideas. So, you know, institutionalized structural racism is a really big problem in the United States, really intractable, hard to talk about, difficult in every possible way. And doing and getting rid of it, quote unquote, would sort of, you know, is a long term project that's already taken, you know, um, you know, more, much more than a century and is still not complete by a long shot. On the other hand, people can have a focused debate about taking down a flag over a state house and then indeed, you know, 
agree to take it down and think that they've made some gesture that has to do with, uh, um, you know, chipping away at that institutional racism. And, 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 and I think to the degree that symbols are important to people, they actually are making a, a meaningful gesture in that direction. But it's just so, so much easier to take down a piece of cloth over a state house than it is to kind of like do all the work and all the, you know, changing of minds that it would take to really address you know the deeper things that i think offends people about uh, that flag right i think the thing too is that when you set out to design something a flag a logo a symbol your intention is not necessarily uh nefarious or or it's the implication is not that you want it to be memorable and enduring you don't want it to be toxic and and powerful in a way that is that's negative and i think I mean, the, the, the swastika wasn't originally the Nazi party. The Nazi party, of course, adopted this form just as the Confederate flag, you know, had many phases in its evolution over time, but it's come to represent something that really has a very toxic uh, power uh, associated with it. Um, the flip side for this, for all of me, for, for me, for all of this is, um, is the, um, the rainbow flag. Oh yeah, and yeah, you yeah, and I, yeah. I think, have different opinions about this. Yes, um, yeah. and the, and this sort of rainbow logo on Facebook, which we'll turn to in a minute. But the rainbow flag surprises me. I mean, I think it's fantastic that LGBT um, as a as a brigade of people with with classically unrepresented interests have something that symbolically immediately establishes itself as what what it is and, and needs to be. And, and of course, on some level, it's a flag of many colors, and these are people whose representative needs and identities are quite varied. But it's really ugly. I mean, it's really, <laughs> to me, uninspired. It looks like some 1968 bad logo for some, like, children's television cartoon program on a Saturday morning. It's not – you can't really nuance the rainbow flag. You can't uh, – mm. you know, the stripes all have to be kind of the same width. The, the way the sort of, you know, uh, colors manifest as a spectrum aren't really a spectrum. It kind of feels like the, the sort of cheapo Crayola box you got when your mother couldn't afford to buy you the one that had 114 colors in it. And I feel like these LGBT people deserve better. Wait a second. Crayola boxes have that many colors? I only know. Well, there know. used to be. Remember there was like the basic set of eight? Yeah, I know. Like That's the one the my parents ones. got me all the time, the basic yeah. set of eight. So there are more yeah, colors? Joseph Holy Albers, cow. I think I Joseph just learned Joseph Albert's some... parents got him those too. Oh, and Jesus. You know, I think that I, well for him. But... That explains a lot, actually. Now I realize <laughs> where, where it all started going wrong for me. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, like, okay. So um, uh, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with kind of, um, you know, Roy G. Biv and the way that the colors and the rainbow were linked one to the next. And I remember I had this thing that I actually a couple of times did, a, did some very epic renditions of, which was like my idea of the solar system where the sun sat in the middle of it. And then in, you know, successive concentric circles working your way out, you had Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars and Jupiter, Saturn, etc. And then I would, in the background, in space, around the sun, start with yellow, then work it through orange, and work it through red, then work it through violet, then work it through blue, and finally get it. And you it. did this with your set of eight Crayola crayons, did Indeed, you? yeah. Perhaps perhaps one step up from that, but certainly not this uh, excessive, uh, um, rich... The box of the pencil Yeah, yeah, this, like, yeah. Uh, you know, the 1% box of uh, Crayolas, where they have, like, all, you know, thousands of colors, indeed, with, with the built-in sharpener. Uh, um, yeah, but um, but I just I used to love doing that blend and just find it completely enchanting. And I think even now, um, you know, uh, as um, certainly people listening in this country know, when um, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of uh, 
uh, marriage equality and a wonderful moment for us all. Yeah, and gays the right to uh, uh, to marry like uh, heterosexuals. There was this real, you know, those those uh, those flags were everywhere, and uh, the White House uh, that evening lit its facade in those colors in succession. And I thought it was like really beautiful, which was very very dramatic yeah. and very powerful. And I don't take a, anything away from that at all, except to say, you know, when you when you're in New York City at a St. Patrick's Day and they light the Empire State Building in green or it's Valentine's Day and they light it in red. This, to me, had the same kind of epic scale. And, and of course, the statement was much more profound and meaningful. And it was, you know, and the, and the fact that the, the, the moment that this happened, the Supreme Court was in, is in residence in Washington and the White House is in Washington, all of yeah. that made it really impactful. Which is not to say that people putting those rainbow filters on their faces on <laughs> Facebook has quite the same impact well, to me. Uh, d- well, uh, did you do that? I did not, and it doesn't mean that I don't support it. But but it had this; it smacked of a kind of "I'm liberal too" quality. And maybe if the rainbow had been really beautifully designed, oh, I would have been persuaded. Uh-huh. But that rainbow, I can't get mm. around the rainbow. Well, I I used that filter on my portrait and did it because it sort of was because um, uh, I supported the cause and I um, thought it was easy and fun. But then I think there's something there's something interesting about that actually where. So I did it, and a lot of people in um, you know in my uh, news feed obviously were doing it. So you could really see uh, um, you know a lot of people visibly in the way that they represented their um, uh, you know their uh, um, their portraits on Facebook were kind of aligning themselves with this cause. So they did it, and then they're I mean the thing that's actually funny, and it's a modern kind of um, very modern kind of uh, question of contemporary etiquette is. Uh, Assuming you're not going to leave a rainbow on your face forever, what's the what's the proper <laughs> when do you take when it do off? you take it off? And like I remember, um, like, do um, you not support me anymore? Yeah, no, I off? remember. So like I sort of said, well, okay, it's been a week. I think um, you know, hooray for hooray for America, etc. And I think I'm going to revert to my previous picture and then it, uh, you know facebook automatically sends out a note that says you know michael beirut changed his profile picture then it's like my new old non-rainbow pictures up there and sort of it's sort of like saying you know and then then uh, you know that's where you're right about it. it like one fell swoop it exposes sort of like the shallowness of your commitment to right. this political you cause. think yeah. you're liberal but you're not you, liberal. Know, well, you know you should really Ask yourself, like, what kind of person doesn't like rainbows? You're very, I know, a person who a person who teaches a course on the color blue. You're very, very dark, Jessica. You really. Are. I am dark. Well, you like everything, Michael. I, I have do. To dislike something. I like so rainbows, unicorns. I, like. <laughs> um, I don't like rainbows, um, but uh, you like everything. I have to not like things, otherwise we'd have nothing to talk about. But there's one thing we both like, uh, Michael, and that's blurb. That's right. Um, the Design Observer is using Blurb's creative publishing platform to make the catalog for 50 books, 50 covers, which will go to backers of our successful, successful Kickstarter, Kickstarter campaign. campaign. Yeah. Yes, we're so thrilled yeah. because we have many people who want this beautiful book and support beautiful books, which is, of course, what Blurb does so well. Uh, we're also using Blurb to produce Observer Quarterly, our new magazine, and the first two books on our new imprint, Observer Editions. As Michael said earlier, Blurb has a free plug-in for Adobe InDesign, tons of print options, and they can print, bind, and ship your books in 7 to 11 days. We think you'll love Blurb as much as we do. Try them out or find out more about Blurb's publishing tools at blurb.com. 
Uh, so, Michael, it's, it looked like, um, from pictures speaking of Facebook, it looked like you uh, were traveling with your family uh, on the other side of the world, and it looked to me like you had a selfie stick. Care to comment? Yes, my uh, lovely daughter, Martha, uh, graduated from college, and her older sister, Elizabeth, and her husband gave her as a graduation present a GoPro camera and a selfie stick. And um, I, you know, I'm famously uh, the user of a um, um, a ancient flip phone camera that has something your, like your called, flip phone has a camera the one yeah, that you demonstrate that it will never yeah. break by throwing it across the conference room i'll do that now phone? and it has a thing i'm reading it now it has like it does have some kind of camera a 2.0 megapixel camera i'm not sure what this does precisely i don't use it ever but i assume it can take pictures but boy the pictures that uh martha was taking with this um gopro so the gopro the film, for people who don't know it's waterproof shockproof idiot amazing amazing it's just one assumes amazing. it has more than two point megapixels yeah i think i think so yeah i'm guessing <laughs> it's it's even more mega than megapixels but what, what was really interesting was that um uh you know i became oddly convinced of the charm and utility of this uh, ubiquitous and somewhat kind of tiresomely ubiquitous device you're uh, while we were on this trip. Because you're trying to these giant vistas and you can't get at them unless you have some distance? Is that a, why? A little bit, but there's something really interesting about taking a photograph of yourself from a distance but being in control of the camera. And um, I saw, that never occurred to me and I couldn't quite figure it out, but when I look at people taking that are that are obviously pictures that have been taken with selfies and specifically with selfie sticks they're able to um kind of get a kind of comfort with the pose and a comfort with where they are somehow because i think they control it themselves i was told about this actually by my third child my son drew who's a uh, up-and-coming filmmaker who did an assignment where uh um he was interviewing people on the street and he said um, the most effective way to do that is to give it, give them a small camera like a GoPro, put it on a selfie stick, and let them hold it themselves. And he said when they do that, they behave in a way that's much more natural than if a camera person is training a camera on them. They feel like they're sort of like performing and they're self-conscious and they feel like you know, it makes them nervous and a little bit unnatural. When they're holding the camera themselves and they feel they're controlling it themselves, somehow that dissipates. And I think even when I look at the still pictures, that my uh, lovely daughter Martha took, I see that kind of ease and joy of kind of just like, here's me in front of this, here's me in front of that. Now, I know that uh, that tiresome record of, you know, here's another kind of like incredible vista and here's me, you know, grinning like a lunatic in front of it is its own sort of peculiarly, uh, you know, early 21st century cliche. But, um, you know, what is uh, popular culture except the participation of everyone in a series of cliches that end up defining eras? <laughs> well, that's very convincing <laughs> argument right there. I think I'm completely convinced now. I want to come back to selfies and rainbows. These are two <laughs> things that you like. Um, and now I'm going to bring up a third. And uh, please tell me you're not going to defend that awful Time ma- magazine cover. on oh, the, the, the um, guy from uh, Oculus Rift? With the Rift? Oculus Rift. Yeah. Oh. I mean, this, to me, was the greatest story of the week. It is the worst cover. The picture is so ridiculous. But it's, don't take my word for it. The, the, the interweb has exploded with people suggesting alternate covers. I mean, really, photographers just taking apart every single piece of this. But I, I guess I want to start with asking you what you thought of it and whether you agreed with this sort of, um, you know, hue and cry that came from the public? Well, I don't know. First, I thought, just as a sort of person who um, 
I think is fundamentally very narcissistic. I, I remember like sort of seeing this thing and thinking, wow, you know, someone tells you you're going to be on the cover of Time magazine, you know. And that's what you wear? And, like, and, then, and then, it, <laughs> then it comes out and, like, you're really excited, you know, like, wow, I can't wait to see what it's going to be. And then it's this. Like, you know, it makes me, like, never want to be on the cover of, like, anything. Of, like, of, basically, you know, it actually makes me never want to be, be photographed again because it's just obviously. Yeah, you, feel, you feel kind of bad for the oh, guy. Oh, I feel because, totally I mean, bad it's, for it, him. Yeah. It's just, it's a celebration of, of geek, of a geek level of, of, por- of a portrayal. I mean, my God, it's just, it's astonishing. But also, but also, don't you think that, like, um, you know, just for, for a moment, the, there's certain technologies that, there's certain th- things that make you look cool, and there's certain things that kind of ensure you'll never look cool. I remember when the Segway was introduced, which is really a remarkable piece of visionary transportation technology. But the thing itself, kind of inevitably, I guess, looks like a pogo stick crossed with a push lawnmower. And, yeah, it really and does. And there's no way, you know, like if you are Steve McQueen and you're on a motorcycle, you like, you look cool, and I think there's a million dorks all around the world who have invested in motorcycles at, in some cases, great expense because they hoping to look like Steve they want it. And you sort of do look like Steve McQueen the minute you sit on that. You feel like Steve McQueen on that. You are thing. trying to liken the Segway to the Oculus yeah. Rift, and I, I hear you. I appreciate this, but I have to say, compared to the Oculus Rift, that Segway is like riding I, the coolest Vespa <laughs> you ever saw. That thing is just it's. And okay, so I want to come back to the cover though for a minute because it's really. There's so many levels on which this is just weird. But, but f- just, just for starters, the basic idea here, if I, am, uh, if I understand this correctly, is that you wear something on your head. We can talk about how goofy the thing looks and whether it's the segue for the head. Fine. But you wear this thing, and you are so transported as in, in terms of the immersion of the experience that you don't know where you are. So that basic dichotomy, that bifurcated notion of I'm in a suit and I'm on the beach or I am walking down the street and I feel like I'm in the air could have been portrayed 150,000 different ways beautifully and philosophically and compellingly but that like that I mean it just it just it's like somebody designed it in 30 seconds and said oh we'll have the guy jumping up in the air with you know and oh have him kick his shoes off yeah that'll really make people buy the buy the magazine have him kick his shoes off because then he really looks like he's like you know just thrown caution to the wind well, um, well, you're also kind of um, when you said that'll make them buy the magazine. I mean, um, one of the comments I've read when people were and there, there has been a lot of online fuss about this particular cover um, and its uh, um, uh, goofiness. And uh, one comment was, "Wait, Time Magazine still actually exists?" You know, and, exactly. And I think you know, there's one whole thing that has to do with you know the role of magazines, the the once power that magazines used to have in American culture. The power it still has to a certain degree but um certainly the idea but newsstands don't have power the way they used to and yeah yeah true. and and the However, idea that um uh a magazine cover actually uh um is 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 uh, is an example of a lot of great designers competing for your eyeballs in hopes of increasing their sales i think there are still some really beautiful covers that are done and there are obviously a lot of really talented designers doing magazines but the age of uh, george lois and his incendiary esquire covers is long past us you know yeah i'm gonna just dis- i'm gonna disagree with you there Whoa. only in the sense that i think that you know if you spend any time in an airport 
people spend time, you know, looking at magazines and looking at books. And they're captive, right? So maybe we don't have as many newsstands where people are captive. But if, if you actually look at the way people look at books and magazines, they are judging these things by their colors. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and time may not have had the resonance and the power that it once had, but uh, I think to the degree that it still exists, the opportunity to tell a story, I mean, in, in a sense, this idea of the Oculus Rift and, and, and what it means economically, the, the force of, of what this means in terms of the gaming industry and, and te- this next sort of phase of technology is significant. It's significant to people who aren't in, t- in the technology world, significant to designers, it's significant to investors, it's significant to millennials. You know, and all reasons why people might want to buy that. They may not buy it. They may download it. They may read it in Wired next month. But and and you're right that the nature of the the magazine itself isn't the go-to primary source that people go to for for getting their news these days. Although God knows, with the you know loss of John Stewart, who knows where people are going to go get their news these days? <laughs> no, no. Wait a second, though. You sort of raise an interesting idea, which is that um, this cover may actually be this really calculated act of sabotage you know seemingly it's you know extolling virtual reality in fact the cover line says the surprising joy of virtual reality and why it's about to change the world so it seems to be very positive about virtual reality but virtual reality in a way wearing these devices and kind of like imagining things in your head is exactly the opposite of buying a print copy of time magazine or any other magazine so maybe the publishers of time actually despite these uh, uh the fact that they're praising it uh uh on the cover are really trying to undermine it completely and sort of make every person that sees this cover vow to never ever do this and instead to stick you know uh with uh, conviction and security with the world of uh, paper magazines where no one no one really looks stupid reading a magazine right you are one cockeyed optimist i tell you <laughs> i mean seriously michael no, no i thought where you were going with that i thought that was very another, sinister a, actually not optimistic if, if that's sinister we are in big trouble <laughs> i thought my role here as the naysayer has been firmly cemented let it be known to all who enter no, here. No, uh, no. I thought what you, what you were going to say actually is, in a way, maybe it was completely intentional by the editors and the de- designers of Time Magazine to introduce a cover that was so heinous and so visually, <laughs> you know, uninteresting as to make people want to, you know, rally around the idea of the old days of whether it's George Lois or whomever, the old days of the great magazine cover. So we're all sitting here talking about, you know, wither the magazine, which in a sense calls attention to the magazine. So it's sort of like when Coke introduced new Coke, uh, only to bring yeah, back yeah, the old yeah, Coke. Yeah, 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 right? Yeah. So it's just like planned obsolescence in a very twisted way. Well, I path. think the CEO of Coke when, uh, in, the, in that day, when, um, in the, back in the days when uh, new Coke was introduced, and uh, they had done a lot of research and discovered that people preferred the taste of uh, this thing called new Coke to old Coke. Then they introduced it, and they underestimated just people's uh, emotional and psychic uh, loyalty to the idea of the original formula Coke, and they rallied around it in, you know, in great numbers. And this is pre the age of social media i can hardly the, i think the country would actually grind to a halt today but uh, <laughs> i've always wanted adobe to go back to, to uh, photoshop <laughs> like one filter you know <laughs> like really just like go back no, to the letter set one two three um, um but i think uh, the the ceo of coke was once asked and then and then of course then the, the sales of all of uh, original coke of uh of coke classic then went through the roof as people realized they were about to be deprived of it and um then the ceo of coke was asked whether or not this in fact wasn't 
wasn't just a, a, a carefully pre-planned, whether it was a carefully pre-planned scheme. And his quote, I believe, was, we are neither that smart nor that stupid. <laughs> I, th- I think it's an all-purpose quote that I, I could use like every day, actually. I think we could use that as our tagline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Observatory, we are neither that smart nor that stupid. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to the things we discussed, including the virtual reality cover of Time Magazine and all the other stuff. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash theobservatory. If you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters, with Debbie Millman. Thanks to Blurb for sponsoring this episode of The Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon. Thank you.